For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In today's teaching on Isaiah chapter 55, Pastor Nathan reminds us that salvation always has been and always will be a free gift of God to those who are willing to believe. Let's join Pastor Nathan now with the message entitled, To All Who Are Thirsty. All right, well, uh, it's been a while since I've spoke, spoken, and uh, many of you probably have never heard me. And so I'm just going to open with a, a short, like a three or four minute testimony. And uh, it's, it's going to illustrate my point. It's not to, uh, to bring a woe is me by any means, because my story is a happy story. There's a, it goes like this for a little bit, but then, you know, there's a really happy ending. So uh, when I was a young married man, I, uh, I grew up in a broken home, and there was some adversity. Uh, there were some challenges. There was, uh, uh, I had two stepdads, and uh, I was the kid that said, you're not my dad. So, you know, that was problems in itself. And uh, after it was all said and done, I, I wrongly looked at my life and figured that I overcame, and I turned out pretty good. I turned out okay. And uh, I should add to that wrongly. Um, I thought that I was a good father, a good husband, a good provider, and I was a little bit proud too. I did it by myself. I don't need help from anybody. So I grew up in a church that had bad doctrine. They were trying to live by the law. Uh, I've told some of you this story. And uh, really it was, uh, it misrepresented God because all I remember is tribulation, I remember uh, the Antichrist, remember of Armageddon, uh, blood flowing down the valley of Megiddo, the wrath of God. I mean, I just, I heard all that. I didn't see, think I was going to see my teenage years when I was like eight or nine years old. <laughs> so, and uh, they put a lot of emphasis on following the law. We did the feast. We had the Feast of Tabernacles. We did the feast. We'd purge our house of leaven once a year, even though there was, you know, other things that didn't conflict or didn't coincide with that going on in the home, you know, so it wasn't being lived out. Well, finally, I just told my dad I've had enough done. So I, this, these are the things that shaped my life because for the next 20 years, I walked uh, by myself, or I walked independent of God. I didn't want anything to do with Him. And as a matter of fact, I was rather antagonistic. So I got married. My wife, uh, at some times, wanted to go to church, and I was adamant and very belligerent. And if you go to church, you're going by yourself, you will not take my kids. And that was the nice version. So. Uh, I had made an observation as a young man that. Religion just gets you when you're down. And I only had that partially right, because first of all, it's not religion. It's the Lord Jesus gets a hold of your heart when you're down off your high horse. 
that's, that's really the truth. I mean, I, I had to be broken, and that was coming. So I went through a trial that just shook me to the core because after nine years of marriage, my wife, we were sitting on the couch, and my wife looked over, and she said, you know what? I don't love you anymore. I was like, what? And she said, well, that's not entirely true. I don't even like you. So, <laughs> so I found myself uh, just by myself. She moved out, and I was just pondering life. What, what's the matter with me? 36 years old. Um, I've got four kids from three different relationships. Obviously, I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good father. I'm not good at anything. So... I really had to just ponder life, and I didn't do anything stupid. I didn't go off the deep end. I was just really thinking this, something's messing here. And uh, after six months, by the grace of God, we got back together, and it was just a really hard year. Um, it was like hitting our heads against a brick wall. This time, when she said, I think we need to go to church, I was open. I was like, yeah, I think we should. And, I mean, that was just a major uh, change of heart right there. Uh, I was no longer proud. I was no longer arrogant. Uh, but I was uh, humble and rather broken. I needed some help. So that's going to lead us right into our text, which is Isaiah 55. And that's the great invitation. Now, I'm more of a textual teacher, but we're going to break this up into four categories. There's 13 verses, and it's going to be God's grace, verses 1 through 5, God's warning, verses 6 through 7, God's sovereignty, verses 8 through 11, and God's blessing, verses 12 and 13. Now, Isaiah... 55 really falls on the heels of chapter 53. We're all familiar with that great uh, prophecy of the Messiah 700 years before he came. And uh, Isaiah spoke with amazing clarity of, of uh, what Jesus would do, uh, how he would be treated, and what he would accomplish. It tells us that he was despised and rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquity, all of those which happened at the cross. And he spoke of what the Lord would accomplish, that by his stripes we would be healed. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life after the resurrection. He saw further into the future regarding the Messiah than any of the prophets. And surely this would have been an encouragement for Israel, who had been in captivity and in Babylon, exiled from their homeland. And just a heads up, uh, I'm kind of a King James guy, so I'm going to refer to that verse or version a lot. But that was the... Um, the first 10 years in the Bible was in King James. So let's uh, start off with verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. 
come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. See, we look at the first qualifier, and that's thirst. There has to be a thirst. There's a need that has to be recognized. And the, the King James says, ho. That's a, it was an attention grabber. Just like, pay attention, listen up. I've got something to say here. And uh, Spurgeon writes on this. He says, ho, this is a gospel note, a short, significant appeal that urging us to be wise enough to attend to our own interest. Oh, the condescension of God that he should, as it were, become a beggar to his creature and stoop from the magnificence of his glory to cry ho to a foolish and ungrateful people. And a good question is, really, who is not thirsty? Everybody's thirsty, but God will only save those that will acknowledge that thirst. And to paraphrase McLaren on this, there are simple needs that we have. If a man's hungry, he knows that it's food he needs, and he goes and finds it. There's uh, social needs that we have, social thirst. We all need friendship. We all need to be loved. We all need to love, and we know how to go about that. Then there's another layer of thirst. Maybe it's a thirst for knowledge, and there's lots of forms of higher education for that. But there is that thirst that we can't satisfy on our own. Now, about 14, 15 years ago, my first pastor, Pastor Jay Stapleton, went to Africa. And he was in Kenya in a village. And they ministered there for uh, about a week. And he said, uh, an African woman came up to him and said, Pastor Jay, I have some questions for you. So she said, the sun goes down over here, how can it come up over here? So he explained that to her, and she was wowed. Wow, you know, she pondered that for a little bit. Then she said the, the question of the age. She said, is salvation the same in America as it is in Africa? He said, yes, it is. And she said, well, why don't more people believe? And that's just why it's the, the the question of the age, because people here think they don't need him. There's no need uh, on a mass large scale. I think I've heard that Sonoma County is about 2% churched. I don't know if that's true or not, but it is. Uh, yeah, I understand it's true. So, um, Solomon looked for that inner satisfaction, too, when he had walked away from the Lord. And uh, he searched for it in the study of men's wisdom. He, he looked for it in building projects, in pleasure, in wine. He says in mirth, so in, in wine or spirits. He looked for it in riches. And basically he summarized it in uh, chapter 1, verse 2. He said, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now that's obviously a life that's apart from God. There is no satisfaction. And you've probably all heard the famous quote from Rockefeller, uh, extremely wealthy. How much is enough? Well, just a little bit more is enough. So always striving, but there's no satisfaction really. So 
the invitation is come, come for rest. You know, come to the waters, come for rest, come for peace, come for satisfaction, the healing of your soul. And the pulpit commentary offers a good explanation of the waters here. Water is a symbol of divine grace, and water is common, abundant, and freely given to man at large. Water is absolutely necessary for life, and without, um, well, likewise, no spiritual life can exist without grace. Water cleanses men's bodies from all filth and pollution, and the grace of God cleanses men's souls. This is the same water that Jesus offered the woman at the well when he said, the, the water that you draw, if you drink that, you're going to thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. And indeed, the water I give him will become in him a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So that's the water that, that really satisfies. And I can remember uh, when salvation entered my heart, just feeling that. I felt satisfied. I felt relieved. I felt uh, a myriad of life's burdens just, just come off me. So that's, I can indeed uh, uh, relate with that. Those who thirst also have a contrite heart. And that's a word in the King James. And if you look up in Webster's, contrite is a feeling of deep sorrow, a remorse, for having sinned or done wrong. And that's another thing. You know, you have uh, these expectations or you have these uh, assumptions of yourself. Uh, when I came to faith, those things were dispelled in a second. I knew there was nothing good in me. And uh, I did feel sorry for the things that I had done. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's in the Beatitudes, five, Matthew 5, verse 4. And that's those that mourn their own sinful condition. It's the opposite of being proud, but uh, humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's another uh, from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6. And David, King David wrote along those lines in Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. All speaking of a need. And the offer in verse 1 continues, And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk. You and I who have absolutely nothing to offer. Can't pay for it with anything, just accept it. And I know I'm, I'm speaking to the uh, choir here, but... Who knows, maybe there's somebody here that, that's on the fence or just flat out doesn't believe. Wine is a picture of joy and gladness. And so come enter into that joy. And milk is, milk nourishes and it's like uh, the milk of the word that nourishes uh, new believers, young believers. So it's a gift of salvation. It's free for us, but it costs Jesus everything. He was beaten, mocked, spit upon, and scourged uh, with uh, the cat or nine tails. And Isaiah 52, 14 gives us a picture of what he looked like. It said, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, 
and his form marred beyond human likeness. And then they put him on a cross. So that's why we can freely come because it's been, it's finished, it's been paid for. It's awesome. We can come buy without money because salvation can't be purchased. It can't be added to in any way. Ephesians 2.8, for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God and not by works lest any should boast. Now verses 2 through 5. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the riches of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Really, this is God in the first person talking through Isaiah. He says, come to me and I will give you. So he's imploring, why? Why would you uh, spend your time you know, doing things that are fruitless and uh, walking contrary to me? Commentators believe that he was talking to them that had been in captivity in Babylon uh, about worshiping idols which um, is amazing. But uh, when the Jews were freed, not everybody came home. There was only, in Nehemiah's time, I think it was 2% that came back, and that would have been about 50,000. So many of them just stayed in the culture and you know, raised their families there. And like I say, being in a pagan culture, I'm sure that God wasn't really worshipped there like he should have been. So... The question is, why do you invest in things that are worthless? And there's application for believers as well. You know, uh, in First John, John gives the warning about the world in chapter two, fifteen through seventeen, when he says, "Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and what he's done." does not come from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And I like the way the King James puts it. He calls the cravings of, of man just the lust of the flesh. And then there's the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Now this is the very same strategy as you probably know that Satan used on Eve from the very beginning in the garden. When God instructed them, you can eat of all, all the fruit in the garden, all of everything, all the trees, except this one tree. Do not eat it. So, you know, Satan minced the words and said, surely did God say this? And basically, uh, it boiled down to, after all that, verse six, or verse 6 says that, when the woman saw that the the fruit of the tree was, A, good for food. She said, I want it. 
that's the lust of the flesh. And B, pleasing to the eye, I must have it. Lust of the eyes. And also, desirable for gaining wisdom. I will be wise like God. So, mankind spiraled out, out of control at that point. And there's also a, another very good reason why we as believers should be concerned about that. And that's just simply the beam seat judgment. We don't work for our salvation, but our lives are still going to be measured. What did you do with what I gave you? So, Paul said in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15, that our work is going to be shown for what it is because it's going to go through a fire. He said, it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. But if what he has burns up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So that's really, a loss of rewards is just going to be sad. Uh, but my old pastor put it in such a way as, uh, you know the picture of the baby that sits there in the kitchen floor and he just clinks on the pans and just he's just happy as a lark. He says, that's probably the way you're going to be when you get to heaven. Heaven's a great, you know, it's an awesome, wonderful place and you'll be happy. But it could have been so much more fulfilling. Now, uh, I also see this is not a pledge to not do anything that's fun. You know, we all have pursuits. We all do things for enjoyment. But really, it boils down to what is your life at the end going to say for yourself? What's going to be the legacy that you're remembered by? And we kind of heard some of this from Pastor Rick on Sunday. You know, the epitaph. Uh, you're going to be remembered for something. And let's just say, for instance, that I love to fish. So I fish morning, noon, and night, after work, on lunch break, whenever I can. The weekends, I forsake a mission trip for a Baja fishing trip. And, you know, the, just my whole life I spend fishing. Then when I get to heaven, it's going to burn up. Even though it was fun and it was innocuous, not harmful, it took me totally away from fellowship or anything that God had in mind for me. And so it's going to burn. There'll be no rewards for that. And um, it's not like the law. Our God is a good God. You know, uh, another thing that we did growing up was uh, since we observed the Sabbath so wholeheartedly, there would be no dancing on Friday night to Saturday night. So Friday night sundown to Saturday, not Saturday night sundown was the Sabbath. Doesn't matter what it is. If it's fun, sorry, you can't do it. So basketball games on Friday night, sorry. That's going to break the Sabbath, so you will not play. So in that sense, the letter of the law killed. God, God is not like that. But just overall, we look at our life and, and say, what are our passions? Now, he says, listen, listen. It's a double imperative. It's a command, really. Pay attention. Eat what is good. Do things my way. And really, it takes a little discipline to quiet your heart enough to just do that very simple command to listen. Because how many of you, uh, I know I have, can 
recall when somebody's telling you a story or they're presenting something to you that you're already formulating your answer in your mind what you're going to say to them before they're even finished. So listening takes, takes a little bit of, of uh, focus. And uh, even when we're praying, praying's not a one-sided conversation. Pray and then spend time to listen. That's what we're, that's what we're expect, expecting, you know, to hear from him. So he, says, he follows that up in verse 3. He says, Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Now the King James says, Incline your ear. It's, a, it's an action, you know, lean in. Do something. So it's not just about this life either because he's talking about the soul. The body's going to perish, but the soul's going to live forever. So for the for the person that won't listen or for the unbeliever, this is uh, going to have eternal consequence. It's an urgent appeal from a loving father. So again, I grew up just hearing about the wrath of God, but that word wrath was really only used for just outright rebellion of his people. You know, when he provided everything for them in the Exodus, you know, he had a cloud by day, fire by night, manna from heaven. And when manna wasn't good enough, there was quail, uh, water from the rock. There was no needs that they have that, that, weren't, that weren't met. Their shoes never wore out in all that time. Uh, and yet, when they're waiting for the Ten Commandments, what do they do? They worship the, the golden calf. This, this is our God. Now, I think anybody would, would be, have wrath for that kind of unthankfulness. So, wrath has its place, but God is a God of amazing love and amazing grace and amazing forgiveness. It really, in essence, is saying, hey, you're speeding down the road at 75 miles an hour and the bridge is gone. Turn here that your soul may live. And the promise is this for those who listen and incline their ear towards God. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant. And he's speaking to these people. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. And the King James says, even the sure mercies of David. Um, this text says the, the great love of David or towards David. But uh, I like that description of the sure mercies. Because did God show David mercy? Absolutely. With uh, the sin with Bathsheba and then killing her husband to hide it. Uh, there was a consequence, but God said, or the prophet Nathan said, um, God uh, said you will not die. So, had he not had those sure mercies of David, it would have killed the Davidic covenant. It would have had implications um, that were far felt. He made that covenant in uh, 2 Samuel 7. It says that your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And for more on that mercy, um, Psalm 89 is a beautiful psalm, verses 3 and 4, verses 19 and 24, and 27 and 37. And then Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16, I'll just read that. 
It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just in those days. Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord our righteousness. So that was an amazing promise despite uh, his life. But even with all those struggles and difficulties in David's life, he was still known as a good leader and as a man after God's own heart. Now why don't you uh, turn your finger over to Ezekiel 37, 24 through 27, but keep your place in Isaiah. I'm not uh, tech enough to have any treats for you up on stage here on the screen. I, I'm the, the least of the tech guys here. Uh, I need a Flintstone wheel to get kicking real hard. <laughs> so, so verse four. Yeah, actually, just keep your keep your finger on Ezekiel 37 verses 24 through 27. And uh, I'm going to read verse 4 of Isaiah here. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. So the pulpit commentary suggests that this this refers to Jesus and not David, but more the house of David and his messianic kingdom. Because if you look at at the text, the way it falls in, you know, after the prior verse, it should be David. The hymn should be David. So it says, if you follow the rules of grammar, it should be David, but the description is just too lofty for him. And that Christ was a witness and a leader and a commander. So now let's look at Ezekiel 37, 24 through 27. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I give to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. What they're speaking of is in the messianic kingdom because David's a mortal man. He's not a prince and he's not going to, not going to, I don't, most commentators believe that he's not going to reign forever. This speaks of Jesus. As I will make a covenant of peace with him, it will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And we have one more verse there that we'll get to in a minute. So that makes sense to me that he's not speaking of David because at this point here, David's been dead for like 400-something years. Verse 5. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Now this is a verse that's just a little bit difficult when you go by the, the language given. It's because of the identity of you. The commentators are divided on who you is. And uh, Constable feels that it's, it speaks of a glorified Israel in the millennium that's reaching out to Gentiles 
because of what God has done in the nation that, that it's going to be a witness and people are going to flock, flock to it. And uh, let's see, let me read Ezekiel 28, 37, 28. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. So Israel is going to stand out and be a beacon uh, in those times, and that's a plausible verse. Uh, but the, com- the pulpit commentary suggests that it's speaking of Christ, who at his coming will call a people that, that knows him not, and that would be Gentiles as well. Uh, and it's, it says, uh, of the phrase, and the Lord your God is in respect to God the Father. Now, these guys are scholars, so I'm not going to say one way or the other, but uh, each has merit. But uh, I, I believe, I think myself that it, it speaks of uh, Israel and the Jews. Anyway, the ultimate result of the sure mercies of David are that the, the line continues and Jesus, uh, Jesus comes and saves us. So, all right, the next point is God's warning, or actually the next, the next category. Verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Now, if ever there's a verse that's prudent to listen to, it's that one, if, if someone doesn't believe and there have been people that have said this isn't the gospel suggesting that we have to do something for our salvation. But I like the way that J. Vernon McGee puts it. He just says, uh, hey, if you're not interested, if you're not thirsty, if you're satisfied with the way things are going now, then this is not for you, my friend. Not until you're thirsty. And that's really the way, the way life is, you know, that you see that in the culture. That's, that's those that say, oh, it's good for you, but I don't need that crutch. Well, obviously there's no thirst. It's been said that God is too gracious a gentleman to force himself on anyone, and he won't. But God also said in Genesis 6 and verse 3, I will not contend with man forever. Or, or in the King James, I will not strive with him. So I think that's, uh, that's worth pondering in itself for I mean if I didn't believe that would be a little bit of a, a wake up it's not to say that God can't save anyone he chooses but the longer that one rebels the harder it becomes statistically for one to come to faith now let's just use uh, Pharaoh for an example because God can save anybody anybody whose heart is inclined toward him or his ears inclined toward him or anybody that, that says yes Lord when Moses and Aaron, or when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh in Exodus five, and said, "This is what the Lord says: Let my people go," Pharaoh replied, "Who is the Lord that I should obey him?" So right there showed his rebellious heart. And then you look uh, at the plagues later on in Exodus seven thirteen. It says, "Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not let them go." And then another couple of plagues come, or another plague in Exodus 8, 19. 
But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord said. So he's just continuing to be hard. And then finally, the next plague, it says, and the, or it says uh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So there's this idea that if one hardens their heart and is antagonistic to God, at one point he's just going to say, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. Now I'm going to add to it. There is no change in your mind. So, and that's, that's kind of proved because just shortly after that, a few verses in 9, 27, and 28 says that even after Pharaoh acknowledged that God was right and we're wrong, he says that after that he hardened his heart. So it seems that even with what seemed like repentance, he just wasn't able to give in. And that kind of reminds me of, um, you know, in Romans 1, where God suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness and just refused God. So he says, I gave them over to their own reprobate mind. That's the break point. See you later. But what if Pharaoh truly would have said when, when he was proposed, let my people go, says the Lord. What if he would have said, who is the Lord? You know, and then said, you're kidding me. You know, he was sincere with his response. Then it would have been a totally different exodus. Now in regards to call on him while he may be found, uh, it's really a call for a response because all are going to hear the gospel. And as far as Jesus is concerned, he who is not with me is against me and scatters. That's a Luke eleven twenty three. Paul wrote, how can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all of the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message... Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. That's Romans 10, 14 through 17. And just look at the Ninevites. They were a wicked people. They were, the, the description I had of them is, is uh, they were so brutal that they would skin people alive and then, you know, stake them. They'd stake people with just their heads out of the sand and and uh, it's no wonder, it seems, why Jonah was so upset because he was called to go preach to him and he didn't want to. You know the story. Uh, but God said, no, go preach to him and coerced him. Uh, yeah, so it says that when they heard the word of God, uh, the whole place repented. They took God, took him for his word, and they, they all put on sackcloth and ashes and said, maybe the Lord will spare us. So... It doesn't matter who you are if, there's, if the answer is yes, Lord. So if you're not a believer and you, and you hear God speak right to your heart, respond. Easy as that. Now verse 7. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon now there's a call for repentance, and it's still an incredible offer for just turning, just 
turning to the Lord. He says he will forgive abundantly. It says he will have mercy and he will freely pardon. And the King James says he will abundantly pardon. And abundant or abundantly in the Webster's is very plentiful, more than sufficient, and rich in something. So you remember grace is getting what you don't deserve and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And then the, uh, the King James translation also says, let the, the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts. And I like the way David Guzik points this out here. He's got a good point. He says that wickedness may be displayed by our actions. That's the way that we're supposed to forsake. But unrighteousness can be found in our very thoughts. And we're to turn from these also. James chapter 1, 14 says, Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Where does that happen? Right there. It says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is... And when sin... And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I think I need a new prescription. <laughs> okay, so the sin occurs when we run with it or entertain it. Paul says to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Okay, now, God's sovereignty, verses 8 through 11. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So we are created in God's image. We all know that. Genesis 1. But I think that's about as close as the resemblance gets because he says here that, that our mind is not even close. Says, uh, and taken in context of verse 7, says that God is able to dispense mercy because he is God. He's able to abundantly pardon because he's holy. He's not constrained like us with our thoughts. His thoughts are governed by righteousness, free from corruption and sin, and just beyond comprehension. The Bible says that his ways are unsearchable. It says, oh, the depths of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. That's what Paul writes in Romans 11, 33. So that verse that says that uh, as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, it gives a pretty good picture of the gulf that's between how we think. Because uh, as far as I know, they have found no end to the heavens. Um, I'm not sure if anybody can dispute that, but it just keeps going and going. So uh, that's that's pretty smart. <laughs> I know they have found, or what they have found is just incredible. 
Has anybody seen the uh, study of the guy that does a study on the planets and the stars? Uh, I can't think of his name, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just phenomenal. The, the amount of... or the size of some of these stars uh, that can just engulf our universe uh, thousands of times over and just monstrous. Verse 10 says, As the rain and snow comes down from earth, what a wonderful picture of the power and effectiveness of God's word, not to return void, but to accomplish what he's purposed it to. The rain and snow have an appointed job. It's to nourish the earth, to bring life. Uh, Groundwater's replenished. Um, abundant crops are grown to bring in grain for the consumers. All life revolves around it, and the Word of God has an appointed job as well. And he says it's going to accomplish what he wants. So the Word of God really is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, even to the dividing asunder in parts of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, you've heard over and over how, how a, a message will go out and it'll speak a certain way to you, but it'll speak totally different to someone over here just because they're not just words, they're living, and that's how God speaks to us. Now, I was over here just a, a few months ago by the cross, and there was a man that was, he was ticked off. He was so upset that somebody had the gall to tell the pastor what was going on with him so that the pastor could position his message to go right at him. <laughs> I was like, brother, I said, man, if you feel like God's speaking to you, he's speaking to your heart, he's speaking right at you, you need to pay attention. And that was a bit of a shakeup. He was, I mean, he was listening, but. And praise God, I mean, that's the way the word of God works. Now, verses 12 and 13. And we're just going to speed through these last couple of verses here. Um, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. And we're talking completely about uh, the very end. Um, but there is parallels. It's, uh, it also speaks of the joy of the exiles who were released from captivity in Babylon. And some commentators say that's in contrast to the uh, release from captivity in Egypt, because where that was... Uh, really hurried and in disarray and, and fear. Uh, this is different because uh, it's a prophecy of what would happen. There would be joy in their leaving. Um, but it also speaks of, uh, of the joy for people when they come out of bondage, you know, the bondage of sin and uh, living for self and turn to the Lord and his ways. 
And verse 13 speaks directly of the millennium, you know, when creation uh, gets arrighted like it was supposed to be in the first place. Uh, there won't be thorns and briars, which are always representative of, of just collapse, you know, devastation. When the curse is lifted forever, or forever. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of water of life. Revelation 21.6. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy toward us and toward any who would just turn from their wicked way of self and acknowledge you, Lord, as Savior. That um, We just pray that, that uh, hearts would be open to you and even in this county, Lord, that that there would be more of an impact on those that don't believe that life would be uh, given, Lord, eternal life, salvation. We pray for those, Lord, that hear the word and maybe even through the outreach of this church, God, we pray uh, that your word would accomplish what you purpose, just as you have said. And Lord, that we would just be faithful to, to keep sharing it um, because it's in your hands, Lord. And it's also, um, we just we pray for wisdom for those that they would, as Spurgeon said, attend to their own interest. Lord, that they would turn and just listen to you. So we just want to give thanks uh, for your word. And uh, as the water comes down and accomplishes, accomplishes what you purpose, we also just give thanks that you will accomplish something through your word. Uh, we just uh, commit this time to you, and uh, thank you for Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand for the last song? You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m., and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.